You're listening to Body IO FM with your hosts, Kiefer and Dr. Rocky, where cutting edge science meets the razor's edge of health and performance. Hello, everybody. This is Kiefer again with uh, the Body IO. I almost said my old show name. And uh, we have co-host Dr. Rocky Patel. Hello. And today we were able to get Dr. Richard Feynman, and he is a biochemical professor at, or biochemist, sorry, professor at SUNY Downstate Medical Center, and he's also done some clinical work with Dr. Fine, who he's published a lot of papers with. And I wanted to get him on the show because he's actually one of the first people I've seen uh, apply thermodynamics in a rigorous way to the human body and show that we shouldn't be surprised if we find that a carbohydrate-based diet can be more efficient at energy storage than a diet low in carbohydrates. So I really wanted to get him on the show today to pick his brain. How are you doing this morning, Dr. Feynman? Uh, very good. Glad to be here. I hope that introduction was was okay. Uh, just great. Okay, good. <laughs> now, <clears throat> it's I, I'm kind of curious because I I know you're trained as a biochemist. So, how did you get into the field of nutrition? Like, how did you make that that transition? Well, it actually comes from my teaching. I teach medical students, and um, uh, I teach uh, metabolism. And uh, one of the problems in teaching metabolism is that it has a great deal of uh, detail. You know, there are uh, metabolism is how your food is processed, and you know there are a hundred reactions or so, mm-hmm. and. Uh, I always describe it that medical students think of uh, uh, metabolism the way somebody described the study of history. It's just one damn thing after another. So the problem in teaching it is, uh, you know, how to get some unifying principles. And I used to teach it through low-carbohydrate diets um, as a uh, illustration of how insulin is... uh, the major hormone in controlling uh, metabolism. Of course, metabolism is very complicated, but you can get very far just focusing on what insulin does because it controls both carbohydrate and lipid metabolism as well as uh, global effects, protein synthesis, and so on. At some point, uh, we had a, um, a medical student who wanted more nutrition, and that got me into having to do it more systematically. And at the same time, I think the, um, the transition to uh, studying this professionally, that is experimentally, came from a lecture that was given by Gary Foster, who did one of the uh, really groundbreaking uh, experiments. And um, he gave a talk at Downstate in which he said that they actually had set out to uh, trash the Atkins diet, but in, instead found out that it was 
uh, actually beneficial for lipid metabolism, which was their main focus. And uh, in passing, I, I would say he put a, a kind of negative spin on it, even though the uh, uh, results were supportive of the low-carb diet. And at that point, he said um, that the major effect was a reduction in calories and that there's no violating the first law of thermodynamics. Um, well, I knew that that was not true. Uh, I had actually, uh, I actually studied thermodynamics. <laughs> uh, I even taught a course. Well, I, uh, biochemistry includes uh, bioenergetics, mm -hmm. which is part of thermodynamics. So uh, I uh, got back to the lab. I discussed this with Gene Fine, my uh, collaborator who uh, actually had studied physics, and we tried to explain what was wrong with that idea. It, it took us a certain amount of work to do that. It's hard to explain. Uh, thermodynamics is one of the, uh, it's an unusual field. Uh, in some sense, it's the last, the last scientific field that still has uh, one foot in the field of philosophy. Uh, and that's because it's not a molecular science. It's a, a science of uh, uh, ensembles. You, you need large amounts of molecules. You need close things to study thermodynamics. Right. So we try to explain it. In the end, the easiest thing to understand is uh, that thermodynamics is not about the first law. The first law is just uh, the uh, conservation of energy. Uh, and that's not the essence of thermodynamics. The essence of thermodynamics is the second law, and the second law <clears throat> says that any real, any real event is inherently inefficient, and not just, not just practically inefficient. Not how finely uh, you can uh, uh, machine uh, gears, but theoretically, there's nothing you can do to make a. Uh, uh, chemical or any physical process is uh, perfectly efficient unless you can run it at uh, uh, absolute zero, which is, of course, not possible. Uh, so there's no expectation that things would be equally efficient. There's no expectation that any one diet would give you a greater amount of uh, athletic work versus storing fat versus generating heat than any other. So there's no barrier to that. And for that reason, the bottom line is that when people say that one diet is more or less efficient than the other, there's no reason to doubt that. So that, that was the essence of our critique. Uh, yeah. So, um, I actually, one, one thing, I've, I've read your papers. I don't, I don't know if you know my background. I actually uh, went to graduate school for physics. So. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. So you know I actually... That? That's why I, I loved your paper when I found it, um, because you know I completely understood the arguments and it really shed light on what you were talking about. That first law, really, when we're taught that in physics, I mean, we're taught about it in a, a closed black box that has no interaction with its surroundings. So that people always try to apply it to the human body and what we ate, I thought was kind of ridiculous. But you know, on the other hand, I didn't have the full blown argument as to you know how we could look at efficiency applied to 
to you know what's great is and you said it great a large ensemble of components which the fat cells in your body are an excellent example of that and make them amenable to statistical mechanics methods um so you know i thought your, your uh, paper was oh go ahead well after 10 years of, of uh, studying this i found the most uh, straightforward uh, although slightly technical way of uh, uh, describing this, I, I can tell you in 30 seconds because uh, some of your listeners may not uh, find this too compelling. But <laughs> what you learn with, uh, the first day in physics and uh, is that the first law says that the energy change in any process is equal to the heat added to the system minus the work done by the system. Okay, and that, that tells you that uh, thermodynamics comes from trying to make heat engines, which was a big deal in the Industrial Revolution, of course. Uh, the second thing you learn is a technical uh, term, which is what's called a state variable. And the energy is a state variable. And that means that the energy change in any reaction doesn't depend on how you get there. It, it depends only on where you start and where you finish. Uh, the way I always describe it is that it's uh, the uh, distance um, from New York to San Francisco it would be this. If it's a state variable, it means that it's the same regardless of whether you take a direct flight or whether you take the flights. Uh, that I get stuck on and fly from Memphis to uh, Denver and then to San Francisco. So uh, the energy is a state variable. The heat and the work are not state variables. In other words, they depend on how you do it. Mm -hmm. And that's all you need to know because the amount of work that you can do out of your diet and the amount that you waste as heat uh, varies from diet to diet. It only took me 10 years to think of that explanation. <laughs> well, that that's better than uh, some of us who are still chugging along trying to figure it out, and it's been more than 10 years. Um, <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, so, you know, I, I think that's a perfect segue, and you hinted on it that insulin is a major regulator of metabolism, um, both in my mind when you say that, what I what I see from what I know about all the metabolic processes and all the steps is, you know, insulin helps to make one pathway preferable energy wise over to other pathways, and, you know, it makes them more efficient in the end, which, you know, if you have a pathway with lower free energy, that's the path that things are going to travel. Um, so, well, wait, let me, let, let me interrupt because uh, uh, that's a part of the critical part of this, which, um, what, what's the real problem with thermodynamics in uh, nutrition is that what we study in thermodynamics, what people are talking about in the first law, is what's called equilibrium thermodynamics. In other words, measurements made after things come to equilibrium. Mm -hmm. uh, but living systems are not in equilibrium. They're, in fact, very far from equilibrium uh, until you die, of course. Uh, so... What insulin does is it doesn't change the energy. What it changes is the rate, because hormones act on enzymes, and enzymes control the rate at which things occur. So uh, we uh, 
published a paper explaining theoretically how it is that uh, two diets of equal calories and, you know, equal uh, material could be different depending on the hormonal state. And I can explain that simply by saying, imagine, think about the fat cell. Now, thermodynamically, the fat cell, the fat is very far from equilibrium. You know, at the end of the world, there's going to be all fatty acids and glycerol. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that uh, a fat cell is in a very high energy state. Uh, now, what happens when you eat something? Well, uh, you start to accumulate fat in the fat cell, and then uh, uh, or so after you eat, it starts to break down, and you have a uh, imagine a sine wave of fluctuating. Uh, add fat, fat disappears, add fat, fat disappears, and so on. Well, suppose that for some reason you slow down the storage step, and the breakdown step isn't really getting going until you come in with the next meal. So it's really the rate at which things accumulate that determines whether you're going to get fat. Because you're very far from equilibrium. The, the, the thermodynamic measure is not the critical part. It's the rate at which you accumulate things. And that's, uh, again, this is theoretical. We don't. But uh, one thing that it bears on is the possible advantage of uh, what's uh, become uh, fairly popular, which is uh, intermittent fasting. Uh, so yes. if you fast intermittently, uh, you're biasing uh, your body towards uh, breakdown rather than storage and uh, you know you have to uh, interrupt the rate of uh, breakdown to store things which is a potential advantage uh, again that's theoretical right. the, the, the argument for intermittent fasts is the same as the argument the real argument for low carbohydrate diets is they worked you know experimentally okay. right I mean, I, I always quote Jeff Olick. Jeff Olick is, uh, you know, one of the major researchers in this field. And the way he describes it is he says, you know, when you do the uh, diet experiments, you do nutrition, you don't, it's so complicated, it's so hard to get anything. But you do low-carb diets, they work. Put people on low-carb diets, they lose weight. You get real data. You know, you don't need heavy-duty statistics. Uh you don't need all those uh, uh, complicated things that uh, you see in the uh, epidemiologic studies. You look at the data and you can see what happens. Uh, so that's the argument for low-carb diets. And certainly as a clinician, that's what we see in the office as well. I'm, I'm sorry, I didn't hear that. I, I said as a clinician, that's certainly what we see in the office as well. Uh, yeah, I... Um, the, the the greatest problem in nutrition is why uh, uh, physicians. Well, they, uh, what I was going to say is the greatest problem is why physicians don't go with things that work so well. And the answer is they don't see it because they don't try it. Right. Um, <clears throat> it's actually uh, one reason I I moved to where I am right now is to to work with uh, Dr. Patel Rocky. Because he tried the diets in himself and saw results that 
he'd never gotten with anything else so he started to apply them to his patients and again he just it just started to work if if i'm correct in stating it that simply yes definitely yeah so um it it was really interesting to find somebody i could work with and get some real data on these things to you know not not prove or disprove the efficacy so much as trying to find the simplest ways to get the greatest effects from these type of diets yeah well i I think the real problem is is, is, uh, there's another level to the problem which is uh, uh, practical because uh, i'm sorry that i didn't early on start keeping track of the numbers number of physicians who told me that they themselves had lost weight on uh, the Atkins diet. Uh, Atkins diet. The Atkins diet is now uh, a generic term like Kleenex. Uh, so, uh, you know, you don't always know what people mean when they say that. But in any case, many clinicians have lost weight on the diet and know it works. However, a real conversation that my colleague Gene Fine had with the clinician is, uh, do you uh, do you recommend, do you uh, put your uh, patients on this diet and do you tell them how to do it? And they say they have neither the time nor frequently the uh, you know precise expertise. You still have to define the diet. Um, so he said, well, what what do you do with a low fat diet? And he says, well, I send them to a dietitian. And he said, well, why don't you? Uh, why don't you send them to a dietitian for a low-carb diet? And uh doctor said, uh, I don't know any dietitians who can do that. And that's really where the problem is. Uh, the and Rocky actually has experienced that quite a bit. Half, I think, I, I don't want to overspeak, but a very significant amount of your time with patients now is trying to explain this diet then yeah pretty much i spend a majority of my time with my patients and visits going over uh, macronutrient composition the diet itself um, anywhere from a simplistic view to a more complex view depending on what patients can absorb so i try to make it as malleable for them as possible yeah it's a big challenge for people he was just telling me about a patient this morning that you know kind of complained because they had such limited food selection um and and, you know, just the applicability in general is difficult right now because of the food landscape that we have in the world. Um, but that that's always a topic for another day. <laughs> right. Um, well, what I always say, though, is it's, uh, you just have to, uh, you have to work on it because uh, if you, uh, you take the big uh, French encyclopedia of food, the uh, La Rousse Gastronomique, Stick a pin in it. You're within three recipes of a uh, low-carb uh, dish. Um, so, since you have to find it out. Yeah. And um, so, um, it is a certain amount of work. It's, but, it's almost uh, like a different way of thinking, too. I'm sorry, I can't hear that. Uh, it's like a different way of thinking. But it's also, uh, you know, a question of the motivation. And uh, I always quote uh, uh, Dr. Alan Fay, who's a friend of mine. He's a psychiatrist, and he described to me how a patient comes to him 
and says, um, you know, she, she just can't lose weight. She's tried every diet. She's tried everything. It's just impossible. She can't lose weight. And he said to her, uh, well, uh, if I told you that I had uh, kidnapped your son and that I was going to kill him if you didn't lose five pounds in the next month, what would you do? She said, I'd lose five pounds. So, uh, you know, uh, you can do it. The question is, for many people, uh, uh, they're putting their own life on the line. Yeah. I mean, I, I think not so much for obesity, uh, but uh, for things like diabetes, which is really where the cutting edge on uh, the low-carb diets is. Yeah, uh, it, it was interesting. Um, it, it, this is a, a little bit of a morbid story, but uh, when I was, I went on a ride-along with some firefighters, and during that ride-along, there was a young man who had found out that he was HIV positive, and he ended up killing himself, and that was one of the calls we went on, which was very unfortunate. Um, but what struck me about that is every day people kind of get a death sentence with when they're told they have diabetes and how advanced it is. And I don't think they would ever think that it was that serious. You know, they just kind of leave the doctor's office with, oh, well, I've got diabetes. I might have to watch the amount of cookies I eat. You know, the, the seriousness of the disease is really underplayed. And I think that's a big problem, and it yeah. speaks exactly to what you're talking about. They just, they don't see it as a life or death situation. It's just, oh, you know, I've, yeah. I, yeah. I, I think they also, well, the, 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 uh, I mean, that's where the dietitians are really at fault. Uh, mm-hmm. Because, uh, you know, they, they have these ideas that a person with diabetes can eat what everybody else eats. And um, uh, the um, they can't. You know, you have diabetes. You're going to have to make big changes, really big changes. And um, that's so you don't get treats. You know, uh, and we all we all make mistakes. And you're not going to stick to anything uh, uh, perfectly. But you're not allowed any treats. You know, right. you have a bad day, then you get a treat. But uh, uh, this idea that it's not a serious disease is, is wrong. Yeah. And it's even true. Um, obesity, I think, is a different situation in the sense that uh, from a standpoint of physical health, I... I um, don't think it's uh, inherently such a problem. The uh, data shows you that longevity is uh, depends on your body weight only at the very extremes. Mm-hmm. But psychologically, it's a tremendous burden. I mean, I, I am not a practicing uh, 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 health provider, but I do communicate with a lot of people, and pe- people send me emails. And I get letters from people who are uh, CEOs of corporations or officers in the military, uh, people who uh, live lives where they have tremendous control over their uh, environment, and they they can't get control of the of their own body, and that's very upsetting to them. Mm-hmm. So it can be a, a terrific burden. And from my own perspective, I think the real advantage for most people for of a low carb diet 
is, you know, even if you don't lose weight, if you, even if it's, you get marginal uh, effects, uh, it changes your relation to food. You know, for many people, every meal is a battle, and uh, that disappears with a low-carb diet. You have certain rules, you follow them, and and, uh, and mostly it's not a challenge. You know, it's um, um, I, I've been very critical of the idea that, uh, for example, sugar is a, an addiction, mm-hmm. uh, but it is very reinforcing. And so if you're on a low-carb diet, and you've been on a low-carb diet for depending on who you are, possibly only three days, um, it, uh, if you're faced with a bowl of uh, cookies, it's not interesting, okay? Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, for, for many people, it takes a long time to reach that point, but for most of us, or, or for many of us, it takes only three days. Now, you know that if you have one cookie, you're going to want to polish off the bowl, Uh the fact that you don't have any desire to get started is a real advantage. You can walk away from it. Mm-hmm. This actually, you know, it's a great segue. I thank you into talking about another huge advantage of these diets, independent of weight loss, uh, which has only been shown, to my knowledge, in low carbohydrate or carbohydrate restricted diets, and that's that you can start to fix a lot of parameters associated with atherosclerosis and dyslipidemia simply by switching to a low-carb diet, and that's independent of weight loss. Whereas if you look at a calorie-restricted, still high-carbohydrate diet, it requires weight loss to see any sort of benefit. And I, you know, you, yeah. you've uh, you've helped author a paper on this, so I thought you'd be an excellent person to just kind of describe how that works and, you know, its relationship back to insulin and metabolism again. Yeah, well, let, let me, I, I think it's um, uh, actually somewhat complicated in that what we know is that insulin is primarily uh, anabolic. That is, it builds up things. It, it increases protein synthesis. It stores carbohydrates as uh, glycogen stores uh, fat. It also controls the assembly of the lipoprotein particles, uh, you know, what they call good cholesterol, bad cholesterol. And so it has apparently beneficial effect on the lipid profile. Uh, the, uh, the conundrum that we're, we're facing is that we've never shown the low-carb diet will help uh, prevent atherosclerosis or uh, uh, heart attacks. What we've shown is that a low-fat diet won't. Uh, We have the failure of the low-fat diet for long-term outcome, and we have the benefit on markers for a long-term outcome uh, with a low-carb diet. We don't have the long-term uh, effect. And my own feeling is that there's some possibility um, that outside of well-defined genetic predispositions like uh, um, familial hypercholesterolemia, people who are uh, born with very uh, predisposition to very high cholesterol, outside of that, 
I'm not sure that diet has any effect on heart disease uh, that we know. Mm-hmm. You know, as we get individual studies better, we may find uh, where the predispositions are. And <laughs> I think that the, the support for this uh, idea comes from the conversation I had with a cardiologist. And I, I said, you know, very modestly, I said, you know, I, I'm coming around to the idea that if you look at all the data, it just may not be an effective diet, expecting him to... Uh, pull out all of the uh, evidence, and he just stood there, absolutely quiet, turning this around in his mind. And uh, that was the end of the conversation. Uh, <laughs> we, we, you know, we have we have uh, uh, fifty years of thinking that our diet is going to affect heart disease, and it's possible that it's just not one of the. Uh, uh, or another way of looking at it is, is it's just uh, one of many, many factors, and it may be one of the smallest ones. So, uh, you know, the bottom line is that we don't know what causes heart disease. Let, let me follow from that by telling you why, why one of the reasons that it's possible uh, that a low-carb diet is best for general health. Uh, the... Um, I mean, the field of nutrition is full of uh, uh, wild statements. So let me tell you what I think we know. There's nothing better than a low-carb diet for losing weight. But it's not the only way, and there are a million ways to lose weight, especially if you're young and uh, male and active, uh, or even better, all three of them. It's still the best, but uh, there are lots of ways to do it. What we do know is that it it can be a virtual cure for type 2 diabetes and the best adjunct for type 1 diabetes. Uh, If you have type 1, which, uh, remember, requires insulin, and you do have to take insulin. Uh, So that's what we know. Now, the reason for thinking that you can go beyond that is the idea of the metabolic syndrome. Metabolic syndrome was the observation that many things that are superficially not the same, high blood pressure, uh, lipid profile, and now any number of maybe 20 different physiologic states, uh, all seem to show up together uh, in patients. Uh, So the... uh, and this was is referred to as the metabolic syndrome. And the question is, this is not universally accepted by clinicians. Clinicians say that uh, it may not be a, a real syndrome uh, in the sense that they're all truly tied together. And the reason they say that is because if you treat them with drugs, you have to treat each individual component with uh, a drug. Um, Whereas, uh, you know, if it's truly a syndrome, there should be a single treatment. Now, um, the impact, the intellectual impact of the uh, uh, metabolic syndrome is that if they're really tied together, then if you can treat any one of them, then you may be able to treat all of them. Uh, Now, we know how to treat diabetes. Uh, 
and that's where the low carb diet. Uh, people uh, on a low carb diet respond to, uh, I'm sorry, people with diabetes respond to a low carb diet, and the longer you keep them on it, the better they respond. Mm-hmm. We don't know what causes heart disease, and but we know that low carb diets are good for uh, weight loss. So if you put that together. If low-carb diets are better for diabetes, and if high blood sugar, high insulin, which is the markers in uh, metabolic syndrome, uh, if, if all the metabolic syndrome factors are part of a single uh, component, then low-carbohydrate diet is likely to be best for all of them. Mm-hmm. So that, that's the real argument for uh, a low-carb diet for general health. Well, don't you think with metabolic syndrome, though, you know, we look at the, at least I look at the underlying mechanism is the insulin resistance. And if you take the patient with metabolic syndrome and try to individually treat their blood pressure and lipid, um, we're still leaving the insulin resistant component untreated. And would that be maybe a way to look at things of why um, treating them individually doesn't necessarily always work? And why a low carb diet seems to treat the underlying mechanism when you look at these metabolic syndrome patients. Right, exactly. I, I mean, I think that one of the clues is that uh, Gerald Reven, who's credited with you know, making up the uh, uh, idea, doesn't even like to call it metabolic syndrome. He wants to call it insulin resistance syndrome. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, that's, that's the, uh, the real... Uh, strong underlying mechanistic idea is that uh, because of the close connection between insulin and uh, carbohydrate restriction, that is why it's likely to be the best uh, overall. Uh, I, I would say, though, that it's um, we describe it as the default diet. You know, uh, pretty much our motto is that what we know is. Uh, much less than what we don't know. So uh, what what you do with a low-carb diet is what, it's what you try first, certainly for diabetes. Mm-hmm. If it doesn't work or if your patient doesn't like it, you try something else. But uh, it, it's got to be the starting point. So uh, along these lines, I find the uh, uh, American Diabetes Association, their latest guidelines emphasizes individualization which is a tremendous cop-out. It's not individualization. Mm-hmm. It, it's uh, try a low-carb diet, and then if the individual doesn't respond, then you try something else. And those are very different. I think there's even, this is a really interesting topic about, you know, we don't exactly know what causes heart disease because we we think of it as this a disease of modern society, and... There's been some very interesting research on preserved human remains from around the world, all kinds of different locations, um, basically you know, looking at anything they can find of a, a very well-preserved human specimen from, say, 8,000 years ago or you know, whatever they can find. And they found that almost regardless of diet, even with northern populations that ate mainly seal meat, maybe some whale meat, where their only source of carbohydrate would have been the glycogen stored in the animal's muscle tissue, um, they're still finding that atherosclerotic um, deposits in their system. So they, 
this isn't a new modern disease. It's what we could think is that possibly the kind of modern diet accelerates it or exacerbates it. But, you know, this isn't a new disease. This is something that humankind has apparently battled with since day one. Um, So I think that's a really good point that you bring up that we don't know what causes that. You know, we don't have any, we maybe have some ideas as far as genetic predisposition, but as far as diet, diet might actually, you know, I I can't agree with you 100%. But I could very easily see how you can make the argument that, you know, diet may not be one of the main factors that we have to look at for atherosclerotic events or predispositions. I think that that was a very, very insightful point and one I'm not willing to make the leap of faith on yet. But, you know, I, I can actually very, well, very what, easily. What I'm, what I'm really saying is that what we know, uh, we can't say Right. Uh, that there even is an effective diet. There may be. And mm-hmm. and certainly I think once we get better understanding of individual responses, we may be able to... Uh, uh, individualization is a, is a real idea. It's just you don't want to use it as a cop-out. Right. Right. Stick with kind of the default. You know, in all the work I've done in the books I've written, I've always described extremely low-carbohydrate diets as the zero point. That's where everybody should start and then go from there. You know, I kind of see it as not just the default diet for treatment, but it was probably pretty close to the default diet when Homo sapiens left the forest and, you know, began to hunt. Um, so, you know, there's there's some correlation there. But again, like I said, from historical records, we know that even that default diet was not a panacea for, you know, heart disease and all these other things that we're seeing today, other than possibly obesity and insulin resistance. It definitely seems to be a a panacea. And the other thing is somebody pointed out that Americans uh, seem to think that uh, death is only one of the choices. (laughs) (laughs) That's a a good way to phrase it. (laughs) And the, the, uh, although the joke isn't the best segue, the, uh, the, the conversation is since, you know, we're talking about insulin resistance and possibly, you know, getting rid of this idea of metabolic syndrome and just insulin resistance syndrome, which there's, there's a lot of reason to do that and a, lot, and a strong argument. I, there's been some papers recently that have tried to demonize the carbohydrate-restricted diet by looking at what I call a refractory period of insulin resistance, where... If you do this very low carbohydrate diet for a certain period of time, when you reintroduce carbohydrates, your the tissue that we normally think of as insulin sensitive, and that would be skeletal muscle and, and fat cells specifically, are somewhat insulin resistant at that point. And you know, I think part of that conversation that's lost is that that actually takes a very very short window to. Uh, fix. You know, you have an initial carbohydrate load, you will see some refractory insulin resistance, but literally several hours later that has subsided and will disappear over a day's time. So I just wanted to... There's also, there's also, a, good, there's also a good cure for that. What What's that? Don't reintroduce any carbohydrates. <laughs> That's a very, very good point. <laughs> but 
but but also a, a serious <laughs> end of that is, is that it, in those cases where the, that's observed, you have to be very careful about the experimental measurement. Mm-hmm. You have to distinguish between insulin resistance as a, uh, uh, a possibly detrimental physiologic response from downregulation of the uh, carbohydrate handling machinery. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, this was done 10 years ago, a very good study by uh, Bishop, and uh, he showed that on a low-carb diet, uh, there's very little peripheral insulin resistance. Your muscles are getting the uh, uh, glucose, but the um, liver was uh, insulin resistant in the sense that it it had... uh, down-regulated the machinery for uh, handling high insulin and high uh, glucose. Mm-hmm. And that's not entirely surprising. That's what happens in all uh, or most hormonal systems. Mm-hmm. If you don't stimulate it, uh, the system down-regulates uh, itself. Mm-hmm. So you have to distinguish between those two effects. Uh, but um, we've spent 40, uh, 50 years trying to find out how uh, low-carb diets have a glass that's half full, uh, it might be a good idea to start, uh, uh, I'm sorry, how it's half empty. We might start looking at how it's half uh, full. The, um, uh, we, don't, we don't have a choice. You know, uh, low-fat is dead. Yes. It's, uh, and, uh, you know, the... Anybody's particular implementation of a low-carbohydrate diet, uh, uh, Dr. Atkins or anybody else, we don't know what that is, but uh, it might be a good idea to try to find out. And you're not going to do that if you keep uh, crabbing about how it will give you uh, bad breath or constipation. uh, Right. You know, it's... well, I, I think, uh, you know, the game is up on low-fat. Yeah. So the, uh, I mean, I, I, uh, the way I always describe it, I'm a little reluctant to do that because nutrition, serious as it is, is not at the same level as, uh, same moral level as civil rights, but I always quote a variation of what Martin Luther King said about uh, uh, segregation Low fat is dead. It's just a question of how long and how expensive you want to make the funeral. <laughs> um, right. And, and you know, part of the problem is there are some very influential people whose entire businesses and careers have been built on the idea of low fat as the cure for people. And so they're, you know, screaming louder and louder, which I think is an indication that they do realize that low fat is dead. There's the only way to preserve their position is to scream loudly enough so that serious researchers don't well, explore that option of higher fat. Well, well, let me interrupt. That's not the only way. Uh, there used to be a, a column in Nature uh, Journal uh, where they asked uh, scientists uh, uh, questions about uh, imaginary embarrassing situations. And they asked one guy, uh, he said, you give a seminar, and at the end of the seminar, somebody raises a question, 
that completely demolishes uh, your main point. Uh, what do you do? And I said, well, uh, I think I've reached a point in my career where I can get away with saying, I thought that's what I've been trying to say all along. Uh, <laughs> you can talk your way out of it. But right. most of all, what you do in science, well, the, the real thing about science, real research, is you get a lot of zeros. Mm-hmm. And if you right. can't uh, turn around and... Uh, well, you know, science is a human activity, and there's no... You know, there's no definition of science, really, but I can tell you what people say about it. Uh, I have a friend who was a neuroscientist at the NIH, and he said, what you do in science is you make a hypothesis and you try to shoot yourself down. And uh, that's what you do. You try to... uh, And a a, a very good biochemist, Vermont, said, you know, in science... You can't get depressed. Every failure has to be seen as a step towards the next experiment. If you can't do that, you can't do science. Right. It, it, and, uh, it really does help direct your research. If you know that path, that path is a dead end, then you're not going to keep going down it. You're gonna, you've eliminated one possibility, which you know, for people who haven't had a career in science, that seems kind of alien to them. It's like, well... You know that that was a setback, and it's it's like no, it really wasn't a setback. It gave you a lot of great information. You know not to do that again. Yeah. Which <laughs> even in life, if you make the same mistake over and over and over again, you know you're you're obviously going to have negative results forever. And you know the the same scientific principles yeah. apply. If you tried something out in life and you failed, well, you know that might not be your strong point. Or you might be able to identify why you failed, so you try something different. You know, insanity yeah. is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. Yeah, but, I mean, of course, uh, we're human, and uh, for uh, the next 24 hours, you don't feel too good. Uh, this was made fun of in uh, Young Frankenstein, where the you know, the monster uh, didn't come to life, and uh, uh, Gene Wilder uh, says, well, that's science. You learn from each uh, mistake, and each leads you to the next uh, uh, piece of information. And then he turns around and starts pounding on the monster and says, you son of a bitch, you wound my experiment. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. Uh, that's that's what it's like, but you got to get over that in 24 hours. Yeah. Um, we, I want to move on to you. You have another great critique of uh, high fructose corn syrup and this alarmism that's you know, you know, surges. It seems like every few years about how it's it's the real reason people are getting fat, and you know, I had said earlier about insulin possibly making some metabolic pathways. Um, more more likely and you know i might have misspoken the fat cell but is that potentially true in the liver you know what i liked about your paper and and we, we can shift this to the metabolism fructose and how how literally any bad effect that you would expect would be because fructose is being turned into so much glucose or 
it enters the same pathway for substrates to cause problems. Um, and and one thing I yeah, I, yeah go ahead. Well, I think, I think there are two problems with uh, uh, fructose. Is the, there's the science, uh, and then there's the uh, current hysteria, mm-hmm. uh, and. Uh, the, the problem that we have is that they're too closely related, and actually, it's what I said before: to do experiment, to do experiment in science, you have to shoot your theory down. And what's being done in fructose research is that the experiments are designed to show consistency with how bad fructose is, and and that's not a, a good way to proceed uh, because you don't do the right experiment that way. So uh, the problem in the hysteria part is nobody really wants to defend sugar particularly. I mean, everybody knows if you spend all day eating candy, you're going to get fat and sick. Uh, But we have to have some perspective on it. And the real problem is we need to find out uh, what the actual role of fructose is. When is it bad? How much is bad? And for whom? Mm-hmm. And if you start out with the idea that the question is settled, you're not going to get anywhere. Uh, I'll, I'll give you an example. Okay, here's a uh, uh, here's a biochemistry question for you. Are you ready? Yes. The uh, the antioxidant in the blood of humans that's in highest concentration is a ascorbic acid, that is vitamin C. Uh, vitamin E, oh, uric acid. Which one? Uric acid. Well, yeah, because I asked you the question. <laughs> that's uh, going to be the surprise choice. Right. So we got, uh, you know, one of the uh, things that uh, uh, goes on in, in the popular media is that we've already decided that fructose is going to cause uh, gout, which it doesn't, uh, and it comes from the idea that fructose will raise uh, uric acid, which comes, I think, probably from only a single experiment in which uh, an isolated liver was treated with only fructose. Mm-hmm. And we, we know, uh, I made that point in, in our review, what we do know is that fructose alone is inherently uh, uh, risky. It may be inherently dangerous, mm-hmm. and we don't know why. Uh, but w- what you can see from studying the metabolism of fructose is that uh, the liver is set up to expect glucose at the same time. So the fructose and glucose interact, and um, so fructose, the uh, the fructose metabolizing system. Uh, triggers an increase in uh, glucose uptake. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's like fructose calls for more glucose. Uh, it's not obvious why that is, but that's that's the way it seems to be set up. So, uh, but it turns out that uric acid is uh, is not a poison until it gets sufficiently high that you, you know precipitates and you get gout like. Uh, uh, symptoms, uh, and one of the remarkable things that I confess I did not know until recently is that 
the gene for uh, uh, uric acid uh, oxidase, what's usually called uritase, is not expressed in humans. And, and I think in some, uh, 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 in some apes. In other words, most animals have a uh, uh, enzyme for destroying uric acid. Humans don't. And in fact, if you have a defect in that, uh, if you actually uh, have low uric acid, uh, that's dangerous. It's, it's one of the major antioxidants. Um, so we need some perspective on this. I mean, we, we don't know the, we, know, we do know that hyperuricemia is a problem because mm -hmm. of, uh, uh, gut like symptoms, but, uh, uh, we, we want to, you know, focus on how that's controlled and whether it really has anything to do with fructose at any normal concentration or, or even at high concentrations that you might get from overeating, uh, sweet food. Um, so I, I just mentioned that as one uh, extreme. The real problem, though, is that the way the science is set up in uh, uh, what I uh, call fructophobia is that the dichotomy is between fructose and glucose. Mm -hmm. And if you cut out fructose and put in glucose in its place, under most conditions, you won't get any benefit, and you may get real harm. Mm -hmm. uh, and it may be that if you have a very high-carbohydrate diet, replacing some of the fructose with glucose will be beneficial. But that's not the problem. That's not the problem facing uh, American nutritional status. You have too much carbohydrate across the board. If you lower carbohydrate, uh, it uh, is not clear whether it's preferential to lower glucose or uh, fructose. Um, right, a statement that is reasonable. A statement that is reasonable, I think, for a clinician is that if you cut out fructose, or even uh, just cut out uh, sugar-sweetened uh, soda, that's a good way to start reducing uh, carbohydrate as a therapeutic method. Right. I think everybody would agree with that. I mean, there, there are anecdotal stories of people who can lose weight just by cutting out Coke, uh, sweetened Coke, you know. Um, but if you, if you do it in the context of keeping carbohydrates high, you won't have accomplished much. Right. It's kind of that elephant in the room, and everybody wants some excuse to continue to ignore that we have just too much carbohydrate <laughs> in the diet period. Thou hast said it, Master. <laughs> So and, that's exactly right. Yeah, and you know, it seems like a new canard comes up every few years. It's fructose, or it's pesticides in the diet, or it's you know, it's one thing or another. And the the fructose one always just had me intrigued, and I think mostly because I didn't fully understand how complex that metabolic process is. And you know, to look at a metabolic process that complex and say. Oh yeah, well obviously this is this is the cause of everything is you know somewhat asinine to me. And you made a comment earlier that kind of placed all this the sugar in our our um, diet that actually rings with something that I believe you know we talk about how sugar is addictive, 
And I remember reading these, you know, this uh, great article in the New York New Yorker. This had to have been eight years ago, and it went through how addictive some substances actually are. And we believe almost, you know, across the board unilaterally that humans must be weak-willed and that if you take heroin, you're going to be addicted to it forever. Or if you do cocaine, you're going to be addicted. That these addictive substances, quote-unquote, are extremely powerful. And now sugar has fallen under that kind of umbrella of addictiveness. And what struck me about those studies or what struck me about the paper is they actually dug up a lot of research on Vietnam vets, which was interesting because a significant proportion of uh, Vietnam soldiers turned out to be using heroin while they were in Vietnam. You know, it helped them deal with the situation. And the estimates were anywhere from 50 to 70%, which was staggering to me. But the more interesting part is, you know, according to to our current fear of addiction, you would expect that that would be the number of people coming back to the United States and remain addicted. Well, what they found was that less than 10% of the soldiers who had used heroin remained addicted. You know, the body, the the individual is actually more strong-willed, and we have a healthier system that these quote-unquote addictive substances, when you look at them in humans compared to animals, you know, humans have the capacity to break that quote-unquote addiction relatively easily. And it's been this big fear that the, the whole point of the article was we should be using opiates to treat arthritis more than we do, but there's this fear of addiction and, and everything that they said is unfounded. And I think that's what we're seeing in the sugar argument. We just pretend that people are so weak-willed that if they eat too much sugar that they're going to be addicted forever and they just you know they're going to want more and more and more and i you know again i think that's another canard that's floating around to displace the idea that it's too much carbohydrate and it's only too much sugar in the diet and i just you know it seems like your previous statements agree with that well you know it's funny you had mentioned the word canard in uh our correspondence, and I um, wasn't sure exactly what it means in English currently, so I had to look it up. <laughs> and um, well, nobody really knows the etymology for sure, uh, but one of the uh, uh, likely etymologies is it comes from an old French expression uh, to sell half a duck. You know, canard in, in French means a duck. Uh, to sell half a duck. And, and that something uh, maybe really uh, goes with the fructose story. It's not entirely false. You know, mm-hmm. there's no, uh, you know, like I say, you don't want to sit around eating sugar all day. Um, but uh, so there's some truth to it, and that's one of the problems. But really, that's one of the reasons we don't want to go overboard. We want to find out what's wrong. With it. I mean, the truth is, was Ansel Keys completely wrong? Is there no effect of, of saturated fat? Well, who knows? You know, we may never find out. You know, by exaggerating it so much, we'll never find out if there is real harm there. Mm-hmm. Uh, seems unlikely, given all the tests, but, um, you know, we can't tell. So, yeah, it, I think we got half a duck with that. 
fucked up story. But but what you say about the addiction, I think, is is very true. I mean, uh, I um, uh, I I probably haven't had uh, a brownie in several years, <laughs> and uh, none of my friends or acquaintances. Uh, think that I have any high moral character particularly or uh, it's not that addictive you know now I would have to say that short range it can be very addictive I mean my own feeling is that if there's anything to uh, the uh, glycemic index I'm not sure there is but if there is it's ice cream which I find that I can uh uh, get by with without interrupting my diet. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, um, my perception of a portion of ice cream is uh, that it's the size of the container that it's in. I, uh, <laughs> you know, it, 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 short term, it's totally addictive. Right. Uh, I mean, I just won't bring it in the house. Right. Uh, but that's different than saying it's an addiction uh, like alcoholics have. I don't go out in the middle of the night uh, uh, to get high enough. I, uh, you know, if I wanted, I wanted for the moment, but I'm not going to do anything crazy for it. I'm not addicted to it, and, and I think most people are like that. Um, you know, and uh, one of the things that we do know from uh, uh, behavioral psychology is that uh, sugar is a so-called generalized reinforcer. In other words, it's not under the control of deprivation mm-hmm. as uh, many foods are. That's why we uh, that's why we serve dessert after the meal. And um, so we do need to know about that. You know, behaviorally it's, uh, it's different than other foods. Uh, but as you say, it's, you don't want to exaggerate uh, the extent to which uh, conscious control uh, plays a part. You had mentioned uh, uric acid and the potential dangers of hyperuricemia um, with um, potentially having gout attacks. Um, you know, one of the criticisms for low-carb diets is it could potentially exacerbate or bring on gout. And, you know, we know physiologically during the first three to four weeks of a low-carb diet, there is a potential for getting hyperuricemia, which eventually will normalize after that initial period of time. Do you think that mechanism is due to um, either the increased protein intake or potential breakdown in the body endogenously? Uh, I don't know. I um, I mean, all of these... uh quote, concerns about low-carb diets, my uh, my general reaction is uh, that it's a question of uh, habeas corpus. Let's have the bodies. You know, for 40 years they've been telling us how bad this is. Where are, where are the emergency room admissions? You know, where, where are the deaths from low-carb diets? Um, and uh, I, I did write a blog post, and I pointed out the only person known to have died uh, because of uh, uh, association with a low-carb diet is Dr. Conauer. But as they used to say on the detective shows, the 
immediate cause of death was lead poisoning. His girlfriend shot him. Oh. Uh, <laughs> <so>. <laughs> That's, uh, <laughs> you just, you have brilliant perspectives on everything associated with diet and nutrition, which is very refreshing. You're not so far one direction or so far another direction. You just, you have a very realistic viewpoint of what we know, what we don't know, what we can say in the, the next direction to look in, which I think is always lost in the conversation. You know, it's, it's time we start looking in a different direction. And right now there's so much research, so much information, so much empirical data. We really should just be looking in the direction of limited carbohydrates. Um, and you know, and that, that doesn't say, well, we know that's a cure. Um, we know it's highly effective and we just, we should start looking in that direction. Uh, I, I would agree, uh, uh, with that, uh, that judgment, including since I come from Brooklyn, I accept all compliments. <laughs> right. so going uh, let me just add one closing thing and, and, uh, I know you're running out of time here, but, mm-hmm. uh, I think the future, uh, uh, potential here is in the study of cancer. And uh, here, uh, oddly enough, even though we get uh, uh, poor, uh, poor general response about low carb and um, diabetes, which is just a killer rat. I mean, it's just uh, um, uh, it's just a shoo-in. On cancer, we don't know much, mm-hmm. but we have this uh, strong sense that a low-carb diet is going to be a very useful, uh, at least adjunct, for other modalities in treating cancer. And my colleague, uh, Gene Klein, did this uh, interesting study with 10 patients. Uh, We get very good uh, uh, response. He was given an award by the journal for the best paper. What's interesting is that it was a very modest study, and it was hard to get funded, and it was hard to do, because these are very seriously uh, ill uh, patients. But I think the understanding was that we always knew this was true, and that the experiment should have been done 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. And it was just a really profitable uh, line of research. We don't know the answer. Uh, and I, I think that's why it was so well received, and uh, so I think that's a good a good sign that uh, well, on the one hand, people are uh, jumping to conclusions uh, beyond what we know, but I think that's going to help uh, move the research forward, and uh, we'll find out uh, where carbohydrate restriction and specifically ketogenic diets fits in in the uh, uh, treatment of cancer. What was the what was it that uh, Dr. Fine looked at in that in that small population? Well, he had ten patients, mm-hmm. and these were people who were uh, had advanced cancer. And uh, to get into the trial, you had to have refused or failed chemotherapy. And he put them on a ketogenic diet for thirty days, and. Uh, as stated, it was simply a feasibility trial. Would they tolerate 
uh, desired and was it safe? Mm-hmm. And uh, we found that to be true. Um, but he found other interesting things, which is half of the patients uh, either were stable or had a partial remission, um, you know, which on the face of it doesn't tell you much. It's only 10 patients. Mm-hmm. But the ones who did best are the ones who had uh, the highest ketone bodies and the lowest insulin. So, um, and th- that part was, was pretty clear cut. And um, so that, that was a good clue for the next study, which uh, we're trying to get funded right now. Um, you're, you're, um, we are going to do it by uh, uh, at least partly through uh, crowdsourcing, so your listeners are uh, oh. uh, quite free to send us money. Um, yeah, well, I'll, I'll get that information uh, from you so we can put that up um, so that they can. Uh, yeah, we haven't exactly started that, but I, w- I would want to do that because I think it is very important. And uh, the, uh, you know, there's tremendous difficulties in uh, getting anything funded these days and certainly anything uh, uh, that's so speculative. Right. So, um, but there's tremendous promise here. And, uh, let, let me say that the, the clue to this and the reason uh, everybody is optimistic despite uh, relative lack of uh, hard data is that cancer as a cellular phenomenon has been studied for a long time, uh, ever since. You know, Nixon's war on cancer, and really it's cell biology even before that. Mm-hmm. And so many of the lines point to the critical role of insulin. And uh, that's, you know, um, influence control over cell uh, biochemistry is the, is the constant theme in cancer research, and of course it's uh, the backbone of uh, carbohydrate restriction. So that's why it's so promising. We actually, um, I don't know if you know his work, Dr. Dominic D'Agostino. Uh, we had him on a sh- on uh, on our show a couple couple weeks ago, and that's been his entire focus over the last few years is looking at how ketogenic diets affect cancer cell me- metabolism. Uh, metabolism. So he's he's got some. Yes. Yeah, incredible data, you know, pointing to this This really is something worth exploring and trying to take advantage of. And, I, you know, I think the data is out there where people are self-medicating with these methods. I know um, a person, my web designer, his mother had cancer and she was stage four and had gone through chemo and basically her doctor just told her to prepare to die. And he was really concerned and asked me what I thought about a ketogenic diet for her and I was like well you know if she's that if she's at that point where everybody's given up it can't hurt to try and that was four months ago now she has you know her tumors have actually regressed and her doctors you know given her the okay to take a European tour so there's it's interesting to me that people are willing to self-medicate with these and you know are, are getting results and we we can't say all the factors that were involved there but you know, it obviously there's more and more anecdotal evidence like that. And Dr. D'Agostino has talked to a lot of people 
uh, where he's basically said the same thing. It's like, well, you've got nothing to lose. Why don't you try this out? And suddenly their doctors are are confused about how they could have gotten better. Um, so, I, you know, no, I think... No, I, I think it's, as you say, there's tremendous potential. We don't want to, uh, you know, exaggerate things be- mm-hmm. before we have all the data, right. but uh, uh, it's certainly... Also, there's, you know, the general feeling uh, of how beneficial ketogenic diets have been for general health that there's a very little risk in trying it. As you say, there's nothing to lose in, in advanced cancer. For sure. right. uh, but, in fact, we don't know. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's uh, probably the key message for this entire podcast is we really don't know very much when it comes down to it. <laughs> uh, well, that's half the story. The other half is what we... Well, what, the other half is what we do know uh, still points us in the direction of carbohydrate restriction for right. diabetes and uh, weight loss, maybe for general health, and great promise for cancer. Right. So uh, um, the um, I, I'm reminded of a friend of mine who said uh, she was a prof- uh, professor of English, actually, and she said she was surprised at two things. Uh, the first was how little it took to make a contribution uh, to intellectual activity. And the second was, uh, given how little it took, just how hard it was to do just that little bit. Right. Um, so that, that's what we're up against. I, I think uh, uh, we can make real progress here, but it's very tough each step. Yes. Well, you know, we, we've run over a little bit on our time, which, you know, it doesn't bother me at all. I hope we didn't take too much of your time. And, you know, thank you very much, Dr. Feynman, for being on the show. And I know you said it was okay to call you Richard, but from a physicist background, there's just something a little nostalgic about being able to call you Dr. Feynman. Uh, well, I, as you probably know, I identify myself as... Uh, Richard Feynman, the other. Right, I've noticed that. <laughs> so, um, thanks again. Uh, well, for... one thing oh, one oh. thing we had in common is that uh, he uh, effectively came from Brooklyn too. Uh, I mean, uh, literally, geographically, he was in Queens, but it's almost in Brooklyn. Almost <laughs> similar origins. So again, uh... right? Although he. He did have a metropolitan accent. I don't. I hope. Yeah, no, no, I haven't heard it at all. So <laughs> that's why I was curious when you said you were from Brooklyn. I was a little confused because I didn't hear any accent. So thanks again for being but on the I show. But I can't talk. Oh, go ahead. No, uh, uh, it was a pleasure. It was great talking to you. Yeah, thank thanks you. Again. Yeah, thank you so much. And, um, is, is there any place people can go on the web? You said you wrote a blog post. Um, what's the URL that they can go to to kind of keep up with what you do right and uh, what you're publishing? Uh, yeah, well, uh, I would say that uh, the important thing will be the Nutrition and Metabolism Society, which we started, uh, uh, I guess, 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's um, been sort of uh, in hibernation 
we're about to start it up again because we have an important association with uh, a natural ketosis organization in Scotland. They, they make they provide meals uh, along a ketogenic diet, and they're uh, giving us support. And we uh, uh, hope to go live, uh, or at least uh, rejuvenate it uh, any day. And I, I will send you information when that happens. In the meantime, my blog posts. My blogs are at uh, uh, findmen the other one word, findmentheother dot com. As a, uh, a special to your listeners, I'll tell you that the current post describing how the uh, American Diabetes Association has accepted low carbohydrate diets um, I'll provide the uh, spoiler. It's not true. <laughs> uh, well. It's sort of a put-on, but it's very serious. Yeah. The, the, the gist of the post, which I think uh, may be worth reading, is uh, they could do it if they wanted to. It wouldn't be a big step for them. Mm-hmm. Um, I've told them that personally, and they um, haven't responded well. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was a pleasure speaking to you. Yeah, right. thank you very much. Okay, thank you. All right. Have, bye Bye. been listening to Body IO FM with your hosts, Kiefer and Dr. Rocky. If you'd like to hear more, log on to body.io. We'll be back next time with more science from the pinnacle of human health and performance.